Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Patients with rare diseases often have a complex constellation of symptoms that require the care of multiple specialists. Getting access to the needed mix of physicians and counselors can represent geographic and scheduling challenges for patients and caregivers and create difficulties in coordinating care between specialists. One approach to addressing these needs has been the development of centers of excellence that can provide comprehensive and coordinated care for patients with experts in their condition. We spoke to Amber McCarthy, a Huntington's disease social worker with UT Health, UT Physicians in Houston, about the Huntington's Disease Society of America's Centers of Excellence, how these centers operate, and how they're transforming care for Huntington's disease patients. Amber, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to talk about Huntington's disease centers of excellence and, and how this approach to care can serve as a model for other rare diseases. Perhaps we can begin with Huntington's disease itself, though. What is it? How is it diagnosed? And, and how does it progress? Yeah. So, as you said, it's a progressive disease. It's a neurological condition. So, um it is something that is actually inherited. So people who have the disease have a 50-50 chance of passing it on to their children. It's diagnosed either clinically, which is a doctor or a neurologist usually, doing an exam, getting a family history, getting a medical history, um, and making a diagnosis based on that information. And or it can be diagnosed by a predictive genetic test. Or if the person's already having symptoms, it's considered confirmatory. Um, the disease really can can sort of look different from person to person, but there's what we think of as a triad of possible symptoms. So there's physical symptoms. People with Huntington's disease have this sort of um, characteristic involuntary movement called chorea. So we think of choreography, so it's Greek for to dance. So it's involuntary, but instead of it being a repetitive mo movement, like with Parkinson's disease, like a tremor, it's sort of unpredictable and can actually be quite wild and expressive. Um, and it's, you know, it's bothersome to some people or quite a few. Um, so that's, that's sort of the main um, unique physical symptom for Huntington's disease. People can also, as the disease progresses, have difficulty with balance um, and with walking eventually later on have difficulty with swallowing. Um, it can affect people's speech and it gets slurred. Um, 
Additionally, so it's physical. Additionally, there can be psychiatric symptoms. So that could be as sort of as common as anxiety or depression. Um, more, uh, less likely things like uh, mania or psychosis where people may be having hallucinations. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, thoughts of suicide or even acting out um, attempts um, is, is more common among people with Huntington's than the general population. Um, and then the last uh, set of symptoms would be cognitive changes. So people have sort of a slowing of, of their thinking um, as the disease progresses can become more confused um, and in later stages becomes dementia. So if you can imagine all the many ways that that affects individuals, it really has a big impact on people's lives as well as that of the people who love them and who are helping to care for them. And what is the prognosis for someone diagnosed with the condition today? Yeah, so again, it sort of varies. Even though it's it's a straightforward disease in that it's very clear with this genetic test if someone has it or not, um, the, the combination of symptoms can um, be very different from person to person, as is the prognosis, so the, the rate of progression, um, as well as the age of, of first symptoms. Um, usually someone who's diagnosed younger, the disease is, is more aggressive and they may have a shorter lifespan um, than people who are uh, first symptomatic much later in life. Um, so we, the literature says between 10 to 30 years, it is a life-limiting disease, um, but what that really looks like from person to person can be very different. How complex are the medical needs for someone with Huntington's disease? What's typically the range of specialists they'll need to see to manage their condition? Yeah, so as I said, with the, the three different categories of symptoms, you can imagine there's different specialists for each of those sets of symptoms. So um, neurologists are sort of the, the, the primary providers for these um, for the diagnosis as well as for the management of the motor symptoms. Um, psychiatrists, uh, you know, mental health professionals, therapists um, treat the behavioral symptoms. Um, and then we have... Um, both of those can prescribe medication, and then also um, neuropsychologists can assess someone's cognitive changes and make recommendations or provide cognitive rehabilitation. In addition, there's therapists um, like speech therapists who can assess someone's swallowing and speech and provide intervention, physical therapists who do the same for the body, occupational therapists who help people um, you know, make accommodations in their day-to-day -day life. Um, and then social workers like myself who try to help people put it all together, make sure that they understand what's happening, um, check in with them, um, and provide connection to resources and, and mental health services as well, and, and really try to help make sure that we're um, attending to what's happening in the present and helping people, patients, and their families plan for the future. You're involved with one of 47 Huntington's Disease Society Centers of Excellence. What are these and how do they come about? Yeah, so um, the Huntington's Disease Society of America is about a little more than 50 years old. It was founded by the wife of Woody Guthrie, who had Huntington's disease. Um, and after he passed, she really became determined to improve the lives of people affected by HD and um, one of the things that was happening then and, and really continued until these centers were uh, facilitated by HDSA 
um, is that when people had the disease and they went to their doctor, the doctor didn't really know what was happening. If they did recognize it, because it is so rare, if they did recognize it, uh, they didn't necessarily know the best practice or the way to treat it. So the idea behind these centers of excellence is to really create hubs of professionals who not only have familiarity with HD, but really are experts in Huntington's disease, are, you know, treating many, many patients and actively participating in research so we can better understand the disease. Um, one of the key parts, uh, components of these centers of excellence is that they are interdisciplinary teams. So neurology, psychiatry, neuropsychology, myself, a social worker, um, physical therapy, speech therapy, and we all come together to to not only be able to provide all of those services in one place, ideally, but also that we're talking to one another to create a plan that's going to be most helpful um, and most realistic for each individual patient. Well, what's the process for a patient? How, how do, do these centers go about actually delivering care? Are they year-round? Do they have certain periods where, you know, patients are, are set to come in once a month or once a quarter? Yeah, so um, it varies from center to center, I think, depending on demand, really. Um, because it's these interdisciplinary teams, most of the centers that I've spoken with, um, you know, identify a day in which all these professionals can come together. Um, so I know for our clinic, uh, you know, for our center of excellence, we have clinic once a week um, for an afternoon. Some centers have it maybe just once a month. Um, but, you know, that way everyone can be together to provide that specialized care the unfortunate thing is that, you know, if, if our patients have difficulty coming to see us on Wednesday afternoon when we're available, um, that's hard. And so sometimes we see them, you know, maybe they'll just see one or two providers on a different day. Um, but it, it varies across the country. At the same time, I, I imagine that this takes a, a huge burden off the patient in getting access to the range of, of care they need. Exactly. Yeah, so instead of having to make four or five different appointments, they can come, you know, to our clinic and, and see the providers that they need to see that time. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I hear from our patients so frequently is that the, a relief that we actually know what they're talking about and that we actually know what we're talking about and we're, you know, uh, familiar with the disease and that we have expertise in it because, you know, when they go to other providers that, of course, they don't know. It is very rare. You know, I've, I've heard that neurologists, that general neurologists may see someone with Huntington's disease one or two times in their entire career. Um, they have such relief that um, that we can really guide them through this process and, and actually treat their symptoms and um, get them connected to what they need. How do these centers interact with each other and the, and the patient community to determine best practices, and keep on with developments within Huntington's disease. Yeah. So, like anything, you know, we're all watching the literature and we're all, you know, doing research and contributing to the literature. Um, so that's sort of the, the formal way that these things happen. But, um, you know, more realistically, it's a small community. Um, we know one another and can reach out to one another. Um, there, these organizations really facilitate that communication. We come together in person a couple times a year. So the Huntington's Disease Society of America has an annual con convention, um, which is excellent for 
um, the HD community. So for, for patients and family members and people who, you know, may have HD in their, their family and they're thinking they might end up getting genetic testing, there's all sorts of education and connection for the community. Um, but there's also work for the, the professionals to be done there as well. And so we have trainings and we have meetings um, to discuss best practice during that convention. Um, additionally, there's an organization called the Huntington Study Group, which facilitates um, and promotes research on HD as well. And they've been doing a lot of work on um, doing working groups to really look at these issues of developing best practice in clinical care, making sure that we're training the next generation of providers to have expertise in HD. So they're offering, um, you know, free continuing education for medical professionals in person and online um, called CME for HD. And then there's also the European Huntington's Disease Network, which is another, you know, network happening in Europe. You're a social worker. How do non-medical professionals fit into the Center of Excellence, and what's your role? Yeah. So, social work is amazing. We do all sorts of things. So, social workers you know, work in public policy, and we, you know, many people know we work with, um, you know, adult protective services, but we also um, are mental health providers, and we're medical social workers. So I would say we are medical professionals. We aren't practicing medicine, but we're we're part of the provision of medical care in that we facilitate making sure that the patient and their their family, you know, um, is not just the patient who's affected by this disease, um, that they're empowered, that we really, you know, social workers start with what that patient, what their family's goals are, and help them, facil- you know, facilitate um, them reaching those goals. And that might be something simple, um, like getting connected to a resource. That might be really making a plan for um, what someone wants for end of life and making sure that all the paperwork is done to facilitate that. And really just being that friendly face and that um, ear to listen um, because it's a process. And the nice thing about my role as a social worker um, with Huntington's disease is that I'm here for people throughout their um, their disease course. And so I really, you know, can help people from the beginning coping with the diagnosis to um, through the years of managing their symptoms. One of the issues with Huntington's disease is the fact that children with a parent who have the condition have a 50% chance of developing the disease. There is a fairly predictable period of onset, and one of the issues people wrestle with is whether to or when to test if they have the gene. To patients and their families who seek guidance from these centers, what are the issues they should weigh in, and what advice would you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm remiss, and I apologize to my colleague. I, I forgot to mention that we have a genetic counselor on our team and that she's a very crucial part of our team. Um, so she provides support and education and guidance to people who are considering genetic testing. And also, you know, after someone has um, been tested, she helps to make sure that they understand their results. And even if someone has already gotten tested before we meet them, she can review the results with them, talk with them about that, what that means or maybe what this means for their children. Um, so genetic counselors um, who are a part of, you know, all of these Huntington's Disease um, Society of America Centers of Excellence um, play a crucial role in that. 
um, but it's also um, social workers and mental health providers and the neurologists. Um, as a team, we follow the HDSA uh, protocol for genetic testing. So for someone who is considering predictive testing, so that means they don't have any results yet, or they don't have any symptoms yet, but they know that their uh, parent or even maybe a grandparent has the disease, um, when they come to us, we walk them through this process, which is educating them, making sure that they understand their risk, making sure that they understand the disease itself, um, helping them think through why are they considering testing, why are they considering testing at this point in their life, how might they respond to the results, both if they find out that they do have the genetic mutation um, and if they if they don't. You know, sometimes people believe that if they don't have the disease that they'll, you know, everything will be wonderful and it'll be a huge party. Um, but what we see is sometimes people still deal with um, feelings of guilt that, you know, maybe they don't have it, but their family members do, you know, some survivor's guilt or, um, you know, even difficulty incorporating that narrative that they don't have it into the life story that they had imagined. Um, so we really, you know, walk them through that process before they even come to our clinic, um, just over the phone. And then we meet with them in person, and we require that they come in person, ideally bringing a support person with them. Um, we have more conversation in person. We answer their questions. We, you know, might ask them more questions about themselves. And then if everyone agrees that it's a good time and the person feels good about it, we don't have any concerns about depression or suicidality at that time, then they can move forward um, with getting the blood test, blood test completed. And unfortunately, it takes mm, three to four weeks to get the results. So we have to send them home, and they have to wait. And we hear that this is sort of the most difficult part um, of the process is waiting for the results. And then we require them to come back in person so that we can give them those results in person provide emotional support and answer any questions um, that they have at that time, and then we follow up with them afterwards. Um, so, you know, to answer sort of more of your original question, which is, you know, what are what are some things that people consider and what advice do we offer, you know, we, we really encourage people to, to think through, you know, why is it that they're considering testing? And, you know, we absolutely respect people's individual choices to not test or to test, um, we just hope that they think through what it is. And we see, you know, sometimes people come to us um, for certain stages in their lives. You know, they're thinking about going to college or graduate school or they're thinking about getting married or they they are thinking about starting a family. And, you know, there's these natural times um, in people's lives or, you know, maybe even they're an older person and their child is going to be getting married. Um, there's these natural times in people's lives in which they really decide that they would rather know than not know, even if it is the news that they have the disease. Um, so it's pretty individual. Not many people actually choose to get tested predictively. Um, but for those who would rather know, it, it is an option. And how do you see these centers of excellence transforming care? Well, as we discussed, I mean, it's... These Centers of Excellence, I've, I've been so impressed by the model and, and so excited to participate in it because um, we're these hubs of specialized care um, and, and knowledge and expertise and opportunities to participate in research and opportunities to, um, to get resources from us and to get connected with the greater HD community. Um, so I really feel like it's, 
it's very powerful for people when they come for many in many ways for many reasons um, and and we can offer that depending on what they're most interested in um, and people can get excellent care from a general neurologist working by themselves um, but it's it may not be as comprehensive um, and they may not you know unfortunately be able to keep up with the, the, the literature as closely as we can just because we have expertise um, in Huntington's. One thing we haven't talked about is clinical trials. Where do the centers of excellence fit within that world? Yeah. Um, so we all participate in research. We all offer research um, to not only the people who see us um, clinically, so people who are our patients, but also just to the general community. Um, so we all as part of the design uh, created by HDSA, uh, we all participate in an observational study called Enroll HD, and that gives people an opportunity to um, tell us about themselves. We track symptoms over many years. We take a small blood sample, send that off to Europe, and it stays there, and no one ever knows the results except them. Um, and then there's a, a huge database of information on thousands of people um, with Huntington's or people who are at risk for Huntington's that researchers can call upon that data when they have a question that they want to pursue. Um, so that's a, sort of the first step for a lot of people to participate in research. It's ongoing. They can continue to come back year after year and contribute to the body of knowledge about HD through that um, method. Um, and then for clinical trials, you know, recently there's there's been more. It's been a pretty exciting and hopeful time um, in HD research um, recently. So um, the fortunate thing about being a center of excellence is that we do have connections with all of these um, patients. And so as clinical research becomes available, we can reach out to that community and, and see if they would like to participate. Um, there's also... HDSA offers a tool called HD um, Trial Finder, and and that's a, also a way for people to both search for HD clinical research that's available for them to participate in, and also to provide their contact information. And um, HDSA will contact them when clinical research becomes available in their area. There's a, a growing pipeline of Huntington's disease therapies that are advancing right now, including. Uh, an oligonucleotide that Roche and Ionis are in late stages on. How close do you think we are to seeing a significant change to outcomes for patients? Well, hopefully we're closer than we've ever been. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the process for these medications to really prove efficacy and get approved and become available commercially, um, it, it takes a while. And, and we want it to take a while because we want to know that it's effective and we want to have assurances that it's safe, um, but it just it takes time. So the, the Roche uh, Genentech study that you're referring to, um, it was the first, uh, first medication tested that was um, in humans that was modifying the gene, the Huntington gene. Um, and that first phase one was found that it, it was found to be safe, and now it's in phase three at multiple sites um, across the country the, at these centers of excellence, including ours here in Houston. Um, but the trial is 25 months in duration. So even from the, the very first person to start to the last person to enroll in the study, it's going to take 
you know, more than two years just to collect all the data. Um, and then it can take a couple of more years to analyze the data and, and get it through the FDA process. So the very earliest I can imagine would be six years from now. Um, but we'll see. Um, then there's, there's additional clinical research that's coming down the pipeline. Um, there's, uh, the Vasinex trial, which is, um, working to reduce inflammation, uh, Wave Life Sciences, which, um, is similar but a little bit more targeted than the Roche Genentech study, um, and Unicure, which is, um, which will be a, a one-time, um, dose of medication directly into the brain. So it's a very hopeful time, um, for HD research and for the possibility that these these treatments, which would slow the progression of the disease, hopefully, um, it wouldn't be a cure, but it would slow the progression, reduce symptoms, you know, and Im- improve people's quality of lives. Um, you know, the, the fact that that's a possibility uh, within the next maybe few years is very exciting, and we're we're very cautiously optimistic. Amber McCarthy, Huntington's Disease Social Worker with UT Health, UT Physicians in Houston. Amber, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.